We're constantly submitting to NIH for non-dilutive funding. We did get awarded a $1.6 million grant in May. And while that is great validation of our science, we have since submitted for a $3 million grant and it's scoring even better. Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, Teresa Whalen, is the CEO of CytoAgents. CytoAgents is developing a prescription pharmaceutical solution to help treat cytokine storm. Now, if you don't know what that means, you are in the exact same position I was before speaking with and preparing for my interview with Teresa. It is one of the manifestations of viruses like influenza and COVID-19. Teresa and her team have been working on this specific compound and gotten FDA approval over the last couple of years, and they found their work to be pressing and increasingly relevant here in 2020 for very obvious reasons. In this conversation, we discuss the process by which the FDA approves a pharmaceutical drug, how Teresa evolved from a pharmacist to an investor to the executive of a startup, and the asset light model that she's using to build her company. This is a good one. You're going to learn a lot. Here's Teresa Whalen. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Teresa, thanks for going on the podcast. I'm excited to be talking with you. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start off. Um, I had before starting to do research here, never heard of a cytokine storm. <laughs> so let's start off explaining for folks just what that is, and then it's going to lead very naturally into why it's so relevant here in 2020. Yeah, sure. A cytokine storm, uh, you're not the only one that never heard of it until 2020, but with um, the COVID pandemic, it became, um, you know, scientific consensus really um, is relating the cytokine storm to a severity of illness. And so what it is, is it's our immune system overreacting and causing so much inflammation that it's really causing more damage than the virus itself. So there, there is consensus that it's this overreaction of our immune system called cytokine storm that progresses people from mild to severe to critical illness. And typically our immune system will respond to a virus an inflammatory response will happen, and then your body recovers, their balance gets restored. But in the case of a cytokine storm, that balance never happens. It just continues to snowball and cause more and more damage, more and more illness. So our drug um, has data to show that we can restore that balance. We can enable patients to recover and prevent them from progressing into the ICU. And the starting point of this, like I've heard of immunotherapy as mm-hmm. it pertains to potentially treating cancer. And I've right. heard of like these different, um, you know, herbs or supplements or things that you can eat that will help reduce inflammation, inflammation. in different firms. So this started not specifically as a potential solution or therapeutic aimed at COVID, but just a, a kind of general, you know, biological treatment that could help in a number of different use cases. Is that correct? That's kind of the history of the technology. Yeah, you got it. And so uh, help me understand like the the realization that there was a potential for this to be applied when kind of COVID started to to become relevant and how you proceeded from that point in time. Yeah, prior to COVID, we were specifically looking at influenza because again, 
almost every respiratory virus will produce this phenomenon. And so, but there's also a lot of non-infectious causes of cytokine release syndrome. So for example, uh, a lot of autoimmune diseases, uh, multiple sclerosis, juvenile arthritis, and we knew we would have a pipeline of indications if we could scientifically map the um, immune response of disease to our drug's effectiveness. And so we were already well into that journey where from a science standpoint, we were mapping the way our drug behaves against a variety of illnesses, looking to develop that pipeline of indications. And again, initially it was influenza and we're certainly not surrendering influenza because that continues to be a very significant public health problem. Um, in 2017 and 18, there were 80,000 deaths from influenza just in the United States. So year to year, it, it, you know, that matters. There's a real yeah. unmet need there. So, but we were able to accelerate our development with COVID because under the emergency, there's um, more flexibility from a regulatory standpoint for doing things in parallel. And so we were able to accelerate our time frame and start to focus on more indications. Gotcha. And so another part of this, as, as someone with less than minimal understanding of kind of the life sciences and, and this um, industry in particular, something that, you know, as I was reading, trying to make sense of everything, uh, a couple experts were saying that they were more optimistic about therapeutics as opposed to vaccines. And despite the fact that, you know, we've got new news coming out every other day now about uh, these different vaccines with incredibly high efficacy rates that have been created in record-breaking time, the issue is that those are being tested on maybe like the tens of thousands of people, whereas we're now into the millions of cases. And so there's this opportunity for experimentation with different uh, potential therapeutic solutions. And, it, you know, with the capacities now with, with data to put that all together and see where the best results are, the, the potential to triangulate therapeutics and massively reduce the death rate associated with this specific virus was where they were kind of generating a lot of their optimism. So it sounds like this is kind of a part of that larger picture right. of experimentation, of implementation of things that maybe would have moved more slowly in another time, but because of the gravity of the situation, right. there's an opportunity here. Yeah, we definitely believe that the ultimate solution is going to be a combination approach where there's testing for um, tracing and vaccines for prevention, but there will be an ongoing need for treatments. And that's where we fall, and it's really a three-legged stool that needs to come together as the ultimate solution. Okay. Because, yeah, I mean, we're incredibly um, encouraged by the news coming out on the vaccines, and that's so important. Um, but there's still a lot to be learned. We don't know how long that immunity will last. Um, we don't know how long, um, how long-term the, the efficacy will be as the virus mutates uh, year to year. So it may end up being something similar to influenza where there's a vaccine every year. Um, but perhaps it will be more durable and it'll last for longer than that. I think that's an area that we have to wait and see. And then, you know, concerning is um, that, you know, less than 50% of the United States right now it's really willing to get the vaccine. Yeah. So, and we know from historical um, pat behavioral patterns, only 50% get the flu vaccine every year. 
So if that trend were to continue, we know that 50% of the, of the country and perhaps more of the world may not be vaccinated. And therefore, there'll be still an ongoing need for treatments. Or even just the fact that we're to this point where it, it is endemic. Like we, we are past the point of some sort of like contain. It's just in this one right. location or in this one population. Yeah. And so similarly, you know, if, if we could have stamped out the flu and reduced those, you know, 80,000 annual deaths to, to zero, if there was some reasonable way where that could be accomplished, sure, we would do that. Right. But that's not necessarily in the cards. So, no. so treatment is necessary. Yeah. Again, I think it's going to be a combination. Obviously, vaccines are incredibly important. And we need to encourage people to get vaccinated. But um, we do believe that there will be ongoing need for treatment. And then the, the real potential long-lasting piece of our drug is, unlike a lot of drugs that are being experimented on for treatments for like antivirals, if the virus mutates, yeah. then the effectiveness of those drugs are impacted. Whereas our drug is kind of agnostic to the virus, no matter what the virus does, we're treating the symptoms of the immune response. So the virus can mutate, we'll still be effective. Gotcha. Um, so it's, from that perspective, very long lasting. And our drug has a very um, established safety profile. It's orally given, it's very cost effective. And so, and it's stable on a shelf without refrigeration for more than three years. So it makes for an ideal stockpiling candidate. So if next year it's another virus and the year after that it's a different virus, we could be there. We could step right in as a treatment. Wow. So so talk a little bit about that potential because another thing I was just completely unaware of is these different kind of phases of different things yeah. and what those different trials mean. You just hit a, a relatively large milestone. Can you explain what that is and kind of what the next steps are in terms of the life cycle of uh, this opportunity? Sure. Um, drug development follows a very structured regulatory pathway. So the first thing that you have to do is establish in animal models that your drug is safe and that it works in the way you expect it to work. And that typically, after every 10,000 drugs, only 10 make it through that process. Wow. So one in a thousand. Yeah. So, and um, what happens is, is when you compile all of your preclinical data, animal model data, you submit that to FDA and they determine whether or not you're authorized to proceed into human trials. And so one in a thousand and make it to that milestone. Okay. And so we've cleared that gate and now are in clinical trials. So we uh, expect that to complete by first quarter of 2021, and they will use that to go right into phase two trials. So phase one is typically limited to healthy volunteers. Okay. And it, the goal of a phase one trial is to establish safety and to establish what dose is the optimal dose to give to the patients who actually have the disease in phase two. So coming out of phase one, you know that the drug is safe, you know, small sample population, but essentially starts to establish safety and you know what dose is the, um, likely the ideal dose. And so you take that information, you submit that to FDA again, and then they clear you into a phase two, a larger trial where you start giving it to patients with the actual disease. And you continue to build your safety record, and then you continue to build that it works in the population that you're treating. 
And then it just keeps getting bigger. So phase two is phase one is usually less than a hundred patients. Uh, phase two is usually between a couple hundred, hundred, 300 patients. And then phase three gets into the thousands of patients and takes longer. But that's when you really establish this is this drug's really doing what we think it will do. Gotcha. So I was trying to wrap my head around the, the kind of medical ethics of these types of trials, because, you know, I can start with, okay, volunteers, it's kind of like an opt-in, opt-in, we're going to try to be as clear as we can about the risks associated with this. And you're an adult, you make a decision for yourself. And on the vaccines in particular, these are theoretically folks that have not contracted, or at least to their knowledge, have not contracted it. So there's kind of a presumption of this either is, or it isn't going to protect you from it because it might be a placebo and we're going to kind of be able to collect our data that way. But once you start getting into folks that are at, have actually contracted the disease, can you help me piece apart a little bit more about the, the way that that's positioned to the person that might be receiving that treatment versus another treatment that sure. has a, more of a track record or how that works? Yeah. So every trial has a trial design and a very detailed protocol for how it will be conducted and what is the goal of the trial, what is the dosage, um, how long will they be on the therapy. And um, the patients are, you know, walked through all that from an informed standpoint. And what we do is we target a patient population. So ideally, you look for, you know, in our case, we want somebody who is likely coming into the emergency room but aren't critically ill yet, but okay. are progressing, they're getting worse. If they're sick enough to come to the emergency room, the assumption is they're not, they're really sick. And so if we were to intervene at that moment, we could give them our drug and they, would, they wouldn't progress into the ICU. Gotcha. So that's the concept. And a lot of trials are, it depends on what's available for treatment at the time. So we would never, you know, they're blinded. You don't know what you're, if you're getting the study drug or the placebo. Right. But in our case, it, it also depends, you know, if there is what's considered a standard of care, then you can't withhold that standard of care from, yeah, from that's the what patients. I was so right now in our case, um, we're looking at the competitive landscape and all of the drugs that are being tested and talking with clinicians about what they consider the standard of care is and being very mindful around proper trial design. And we look to include certain patients and then exclude other patients depending on their circumstances and how it might complicate you know, their prognosis or the success of the trial. So it's, it's um, quite detailed and um, has to be submitted in its entirety to the FDA and approved. And then you start to recruit patients in and um, walk them through the trial. And, and of course, they have to consent. Gotcha. Well, I'm glad there's smart people thinking through that stuff <laughs> yeah. because there's, there's obviously a lot of complexity that goes into it. And, um, you know, that that's obviously how we get these advancements in therapeutics that we've already seen in the last half a year and will continue to, to progress. I, I want to take a step back, though, because of the complexity associated with what you just laid out and come to understand how you found yourself in the position to be building a company that's doing this. So 
can you kind of, you know, paint a little bit of the history that informs how you got to this role as CEO of CytoAgents? Right. So I'm a pharmacist by trade. And um, although I worked in a hospital pharmacy, uh, actually at um, UPMC before it was UPMC, but I spent a, a good bit of time in the hospital um, setting, understanding um, the role of the pharmacist, really understanding pharmaceutical uh, treatment and how it's managed at the hospital level. And then I ventured out into industry and spent 20 years in a variety of industry uh, level positions, uh, more than 10 years with Siemens Medical, which is a big um, healthcare IT medical device company, um, and did both implementation in the hospital as well as managed the sales force. And then from there, I also worked um, in industry for a robotics company and then another IT, healthcare IT company. So I have a, um, a long history of healthcare IT experience um, and kind of rose through the management levels. And then I went and um, I was involved in a company that got an, acquired. And so I, out of that, I started looking at a smaller startups uh, to go into. And through that, I realized that I needed to become more of an expert in how you raise capital and how you raise money to fund companies. And so what I decided to do is become an investor myself and be, so I joined NextStack Fund as in, invested in NextStack Fund, invested in Blue Tree Allied Angels and got very involved in the investment committee and the due diligence committees. And it was really through that and really understood why do folks invest at early, in early stage companies? What does the profile of an ideal company look like? How might I build a company that's investable? and really understand what it is they're looking for because it's a very risky asset to invest in. Yeah. But it's early stage and, you know, it's high risk, but it's also high potential payoff. So it was through that experience that I got to know Catherine Mott and they had a portfolio company that we acquired. That company um, ran out of money, but it had made it to get this investigation on and made it to this point with FDA where they could be cleared into clinical trials. And so Catherine's viewpoint was this drug has so much potential, could be so meaningful to the world. I want the option to recapitalize a new company. And so she recruited me to take over as CEO, rebuild the team, acquire all the assets, and start from scratch rebuilding the team and um, raising the money. So that's really what we've done for the last two years. Um, and, and, and to, you know, paint with a broad brush, like we talked with Brian Scott from Pitt Moss a couple weeks ago who had a similar story of this company where there was a brilliant inventor behind the kind of core product that, that delivered this kind of core insight for something new that could be brought to market. But there's this huge gap between the invention and the actual go-to-market strategy right. that you might have from building a sales, a sales force, like you mentioned, and you know understanding which market to sell into and all these other type of things. So can you just tell a little bit more of the history of, of the kind of starting point? And then in terms of what you were picking up and running with, was it a patent? Was it, you know, what, what was there to kind of start with? Right. The analogy for us is that our predecessor company's name was Gemis. And Gemis had brilliant scientists, brilliant chemists that did all the drug discovery work. And that's incredibly appropriate at that early stage. 
But to your point, they got it to a point where it was ready to really start investing and progressing it through a commercial regulatory track. And that's where they needed to expand their team. And they weren't that agile. They did not expand the team in a way that kept the company evolving and growing. So that was really the demise of Gemis. It wasn't the science. The science is solid. So we were able to acquire that the science, the patents, all the sponsorship with FDA. We were one of that one that 10 out of 10,000 drugs or one out of 1,000 drug. That's what we acquired. That was the asset. And so we just needed to raise the capital to continue on the regulatory pathway. Gotcha. And and the understanding there, like like you're saying, from the due diligence part and understanding what makes a company investable is really, it's another thing that we come back to, but it, it's this framework of there's multiple sales uh, targets when you're developing a startup. Your, your traditional business, we have a customer that we serve or we have a client that we serve and we just have to be solely focused and solely obsessed with how we sell this product or this service to that customer and or client. But in a startup environment, you're, you're fearing multiple stakeholders where you have to understand the sales process to what that end buyer might be. But really in these earlier stages, it's selling yourself to the FDA, understanding their kind of quote unquote buying process for moving you through there. And then also positioning the entire company as itself as an investable asset to either the investors that capitalize the company to start with, or you've you've also gotten grants from the NIH right. and these other entities that don't dilute you from an equity standpoint, right. but do give you the kind of you know fuel in the tank, so to speak, to get where you're going. Right. And one fuels the other. So we work in parallel on those work streams. We we're constantly submitting to NIH for non-dilutive funding. We did get awarded a $1.6 million grant in May. And while that is great validation of our science, we have since submitted for a $3 million grant, and it's scoring even better. Awesome. So that's been moved to probable funding, and we expect an award in January. And that is purely non-dilutive to the company, which is great. And it's a validation of the science because it's very hard to be awarded an NIH grant. And so that signals to our investor community that this science is legitimate, that it's validated, that the NIH believes in it. To some degree, you're, you're almost de-risking the investment for that investor because right. you're taking, if, if they're looking at you know, a, a library of potential risks that could be the downfall of this startup getting to where it wants to go, you've taken one off the table, which makes them say, okay, this is more attractive. Right. Yeah. Getting in, you know, making yourself investable is all about de-risking. Anything that they're worried about going wrong, you need to um, have a plan for. Yeah. So um, that's what we do every day is de-risk our path with FDA, de-risk our path with our investors, de-risk our path with NIH. That's what it's all about. And you need a great team. So, so that you led me right into the next question. How do you blend those things? Because, you know, it's, it's very easy to spread yourself thin, but it's also very easy to, and, and I've been guilty of this with my own company, like spend time on something for which you are not the most uh, best equipped person to pursue. Right. And so how does that get differentiated at this stage where you're, you need the expertise of dealing with the FDA, you need the expertise of communicating to investors, and then the actual hard science itself of proving out these yeah. models. Yeah, I think you need real clarity on skill sets, priorities and skill sets to address the priorities. And what we've done is take a very a virtual approach because I know that what I need to accomplish spans a, a wide 
spectrum of skill sets. To your point, I need toxicologists, regular people, statisticians, chief medical officer, chief science officer. We need to know how to raise money, chief financial officer. Um, how am I looking to commercialize this? What's the reimbursement strategy? How would we interact with payers? All the business development side of the house. I didn't even think about the insurance side, but that's a yeah, whole other monster that's a as whole well. Another. So you have to, and, and for us being a small company and wanting all of our capital going to value creation through research and development and getting further through the FDA pathway, I need that strong bench strength but I don't want to have to necessarily hire all those skill sets because our burn rate would just be skyrocketed. So I've strategically engaged um, a few uh, consulting firms, and I'm able to plug and play through their bench strength the skill sets that I need when I need them instead of having them all on payroll. So that's like a turn on, turn off type of thing, like a spigot, as opposed to some employee where you have like a monthly obligation that you have to pay right. for. Right. Right. So I'm able to turn that on and off. And and maybe can you make that a little more legible in terms of like, like are they working in a lab to kind of confirm something or, or what is the actual work that's being done by an entity like that? So our drug is, um, we, we purchase the drug. Our supplier is in South Korea. Gotcha. Um, so we purchase the drug from them. And then we use also commercial research organizations. So we also have contracts with formulation folks who actually make it into a tablet, for example, take the drug substance and create a tablet. We don't do that in-house. We go to commercialize labs. Again, for us to have a lab to accomplish everything that we need to accomplish, we just, we don't have, we're not capitalized in that way. And that's also like the infrastructure and the build out associated with that would be an exorbitant cost relative to something that's already in place. And, you know, being able to square that out to all the different people. Right. So we pick and choose the specialty commercial, the research organizations um, that are the best of the best. And then our team oversees them. Gotcha. Yeah. So another thing that is my absolute favorite thing to do is to talk to a practitioner who's actually in the trenches doing something and dissuade myself of just falling for the media headline. And the media headline is (laughs) that we have these uh, medical supply chains that are all offshored that, that, you know, represent something of a national security risk. And so for you being someone who is shopping these different potential sources for that type of sourcing, what can you tell me in terms of separating fact from fiction from that kind of, I don't know if it's like top line media narrative, but it is, it is one of the narratives that I see bubbled up, but I don't have any sort of sophistication to actually validate. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely our supply chains are uh, dependent on offshore. So that is at, that puts us at risk to some degree. Yeah. When, from our perspective, our drug is a certain type of drug that only two or three people in the world manufacture it. Gotcha. It's highly specialized. So it's almost like the, um, like the chip industry where there's like the Taiwanese semiconductor that is right. like so Very enormously crucial. It, it would work similarly. Yeah. So we do work our, you know, we have a Yansong fine chemical. It provides our drug and they've been an incredible partner. They're in South Korea. But we do know that there's other sources, and so we keep in contact with those other possible sources if there were to be a problem. Gotcha. But, um, yeah, that's 
a big topic that is yes, incredibly relevant. I mean, just the supply chains that we're going to be um, looking at with this vaccine, the logistical lift is going to be unprecedented. Yeah. You know, just the storage requirements, the ref- the free the temperature requirements. Some vaccines are two doses, some are one, some are weeks apart, some are a month apart. How are you keeping track of all that and ensuring that everybody is adhering properly? So that's going to be a big logistical challenge for the country next year. Yeah. And you use the word unprecedented. I, I cannot fathom that... <clears throat> any other word being like the word of the year, you know, like the yeah. dictionaries are like the word of the year. That has to be. I, yeah, I've the number one than, word of the year. Yeah. 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 100%. Cool. Well, this has been incredibly educational for me. What, if anything else, were you hoping to share about Cyto agents today that I didn't give you a chance to? I think the biggest thing to remember is that we're a long lasting treatment for many indications. So we're getting started with COVID-19, but there we have our eyes on many different diseases that we can be therapeutically beneficial to. And that's really our mission. And, you know, we have a great team. We've made incredible progress over the last two years, and we expect that to continue at rapid speed. And it, I'd imagine that there's a, there's a degree to which there's like institutional learnings that you're getting from going through this whole process, but also that validation or, or even just the development of the, the science itself that leads lends itself to those eventual other use cases. We're listening to a podcast with the, one of the purveyors of the, uh, the mRNA bio and uh, bio and gen bio and tech uh, vaccine. And he was talking about how his original use case for this mRNA was a cancer use case, right. but he kind of repurposed it for this um, coronavirus vaccine. It sounds like kind of like a similar. That's what we're doing. We framework. have multiple use cases that we're starting to evaluate in parallel so that we can uh, have multiple indications that make the company more investable, less risky, and we can manage the competitive landscape more easily when you can, um, you know, you, you don't have to ward off every, every headline that comes out about COVID-19. Yeah. Um, so. Awesome. Well, I want people to follow along, check out what you're doing as things continue to progress, what digital coordinates can we provide everyone, Teresa, so they can learn more and follow along? Yeah, uh, we're very active Cyto agents on uh, LinkedIn. That would be our primary channel. But of course, we have our website too, but we are very active on LinkedIn. That's perfect. I'm very active on LinkedIn too. So when we <laughs> share this, I'm sure it'll get a, uh, a great response. For the folks that have listened to the end, you can find links to everything that Teresa's doing in the show notes. Uh, those are either in the podcast app where you're probably listening to this or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for this and every single episode of the show. Uh, but before I let you go, Teresa, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Yeah, I think um, what I would say is surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. That's always been something I have lived by. And if you don't allow yourself to be intimidated by that. You can learn so much. You can grow so much. And you can make the, the, whatever you're working on, you know, exponentially better. Yeah. I've, I've always, um, I, I mean, the base case is that most of the people I'm around are smarter than me. <laughs> but being willing to ask the really dumb questions, yes. like the, the obviously stupid question, is what has helped me do the most learning. Sure. Because, I mean, that's how you learn. Yeah. Um, and you can't be afraid to do that. And... What I've learned is 
you know, just because you're a PhD in immunology doesn't mean that you know everything about business. And just because you're a CFO, they know nothing about immunology. So, but sometimes in those simple questions, things that seem so obvious get surfaced. Yeah. And when you don't have an answer, even the smartest people in the room may not have an answer to that supposed dumb question. Um, And then the whole team gets better. A hundred percent. And I'm also just obsessed with the idea of like the deep generalist. So you have this background as like a pharmacist, understanding the actual composition of a drug, com- uh, a drug compound, and then simultaneously like develop a go-to-market strategy and run a sales team. Right. It's kind of very different, like, like that's personality management and incentive management, <laughs> and then like hardcore chemistry being these kind of two, yeah. you know, almost polar opposite type of experiences. But the deep generalist who has maybe not a 10 out of 10 understanding of all those things, but enough to be dangerous in all those yes. domains is really how you end up in a position like you're in right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of my strengths is that I'm able to relate to our chief medical officer, to our chief science officer, to our chief financial officer, to business development, sales. I've, I have a little bit, like you said, enough to be dangerous and I can be the translator in the team and bring everybody together and align everybody so that everybody understands what the priorities are and how we're going to stay focused and execute on the plan. Beautiful. Well, thanks for giving us a little time and going on the podcast. Great. Thank you. We just went deep with Teresa Whalen. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would encourage you to check out our large back catalog of past interviews. If you're interested in the approval and development of medical devices, products, and pharmaceuticals, we have an old interview with Courtney Williamson from A Bill of Life that you might enjoy, but there are a ton of conversations with entrepreneurs across the spectrum of industries that you can learn from and take lessons to help you craft a more effective and fulfilling career. It's why you got to be subscribed here to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.